0: The Ultimate Wrestling Match. We're in Genesis chapter 32, concluding our study on the life of Jacob and the study of Genesis. We started back in chapter 27, and we're now to chapter 32. I encourage you to read uh, chapter 31 last week and 30 on your own as we look at the life of Jacob and some things that occurred there. If you'll remember, just to catch us up, Jacob was born as a twin. His twin brother was that of Esau. Jacob's grandfather was Abraham in whom the promised covenant had been given that through him and through his descendants all nations would be blessed and his descendants would be as countless as sands on the seashore. And so as he received this promise, as he was called out as a people of God, it was passed on to Isaac And Isaac had these two sons, Jacob and Esau, twin boys. And Esau was the first, but even as Esau was being born, Jacob was grabbing at his heels, which is what his name means, seeking to manipulate the circumstance, seeking to manipulate him even at birth. And so Jacob's given the name, heel grabber, or one who is deceitful, one who manipulates. That is his name. And we see him living up to that name. He lives up that name in the form at first he manipulates his brother into giving him his birthright. Esau's hungry one day. He comes in from a hunt and there's stew cooking and he's so hungry that he says, what must I do to receive some of this food? He said, if you give me your birthright. And so Esau gives it to him, but then he despises Isaac after that point or despises Jacob. Then after that point, later on, Jacob... Uh, conceives and connives with his mother this plan to manipulate and deceitfully take the blessing that normally would have been given to Esau and have Isaac give it to him. They wait till he's older, until he's blind and cannot hear and his faculties are reduced to that of an extremely old man. And then the trickster tricks his father into receiving that blessing that blessing of inheritance. And when that happens, even though God had already promised Rebekah that Jacob would ultimately receive it, when they go about their own way and they manipulate those circumstances, Jacob is forced to leave his homeland because Esau is ready to kill him. So his mother says, Go to my brother's house, Laban, 500 miles away, and stay there until I send word, until your brother's wrath simmers down, and I will send for you one day. But that day never comes. A matter of fact, his mother passes away before he ever gets back. And he finds himself in a land for 20 years in which he finds himself in situations with his uncle where he in fact becomes the one that is deceived and manipulated. He works seven years for what he thinks will be his wife, Rachel. But in the end, Laban deceives him and tricks him. And he in fact ends up marrying Leah, And then he is able to marry Rachel, but only after he commits to serve another seven years. Then after 14 years, he's ready to go, but Laban says, what can I do to keep you? And they devise a plan in which Jacob will take all the spotted sheep and all the dark sheep and all the spotted and speckled goats. And that way they will know whose goats belong to who. And God causes him to prosper And he becomes a wealthy man during those six years. And then we find Jacob headed home after the vision comes to him that now is the time to head home to that land of promise, to the land where the blessing resides. Now, as we look at this chapter, we're going to notice something unique. I call this the ultimate wrestling match because in fact, Jacob will wrestle with God. Matter of fact, that very name that he will be changed to is called Israel. You know what it means? It means one who wrestles with God, one who contends with God. Now, this is one of those sermons that, quite frankly, is really good for me. I mean, I've been excited about this one because this one's for me. You know, sometimes I do sermons and they help me, but this one, like, I'm thinking, I need this. It's like, I'm all about this. Like, God is speaking to me. He's identifying me. And I so resonate with this. And there's some questions as I started to study this text that I, that I wanted answered for me. The first one was, does God intend for us to wrestle with our faith today? And I believe He does. Number two, does God use times of wrestling and struggling to grow us How do we wrestle with God in a healthy way? And does God still change us today? matter of fact, we'll see that He changes the name of Jacob. He changes his name and He changes who He is. Some people can change. They're those who submit to the authority of God and to the hand of God. I believe God wants to change lives still today. And just as we'll see, He changes the life and the name that is identified with that life in Jacob. So does he still do today. When we hear a person's name, it represents who they are. When we speak that name, whether it is David or John or Bill or Jane or Allison, what does that name conjure in our mind? What does it represent? That's what God wants to change in our lives for some of us today today. You know, where we are expecting our second child at this point, and we've been trying to, to figure out what names are we going to name this little girl. matter of fact, that's what we're going to have in a couple of months here, uh, unless we get fooled. And um, I, wa- I wasn't doing that for a I was using this illustration here. But nevertheless, uh, as we come up, how do we come up with names? Well, some people do it by what is the family name? What is the event that's characteristic of what's going on? What's trendy? Uh, What's cool? What sounds good? Some people do it from their ethnic background or their religious background. A lot of times in Scripture we see it defined by what is occurring right there at that time. What is the circumstance? What's happening? What have you been identified as? But we see that God sometimes changes names. As He did it from Abraham. Abraham, from Abram to Abraham, the father of many, as he did it from Sarah to Sarah, the mother, the princess of many. We see him doing it also with Paul. His name was Saul, from Simon to Peter, and from Jacob to Israel, one who struggles with God. Are we supposed to struggle with God? Are we supposed to wrestle with God? Let me tell you this. Most of us come in here with a theological predisposition. What that means is you've already determined how you're going to think and approach life and approach Scriptures. And if you're not careful, you make your culture and the, your tradition affect Scripture more than Scripture affects you. Okay? And I've said this before, but 20-25% to 25% of my theology is wrong. I mean it's just wrong I, I don't have it right and if I knew what twenty or twenty five percent it was I'd correct it but here's the real truth you can go to another church and regardless of what the guy says some of what he says is wrong too he has misinterpreted or misunderstood certain aspects of the faith and of scripture how do how does that happen well I'll tell you how it happens I believe this book to be completely infallible I believe it is the inerrant word of God but If you know me, and if you don't, I'll just go ahead and give you the clue. I'm completely fallible and make errors all the time. Okay, I make mistakes all the time. And sometimes that lands on my understanding of God and understanding of Scripture. I look back at times in my past when I was a kid and a teenager and older, and I believed ridiculous things, like stupid things. I remember one time when I was in high school, I decided to get my life Christ, I'm going to get right, and I'm in an old country church, and this evangelist comes in, and he says, praying knees should never have dancing feet. So for the next three years, I thought you couldn't dance. I thought it was a sin. I thought you couldn't pray if you danced. I mean, then I had nothing. It was like no Scripture whatsoever. It was some tradition, some ridiculous expression. His grandfather probably told him, passed down, and all of a sudden, we're preaching it like it's the truth of God's Word or something. Hey, let me tell you, there are traditions, and that's great. And there are cultures, and that's fine. But you don't take your culture and try to filter God's Word through it. God's Word and His principles supersede your culture, your tradition, your thoughts, your ways. So one of your predispositions might be this. We should never struggle with our faith. We should never wrestle with God. I am here to tell you that Jacob's very name Israel of what he was changed. It went from one who is a deceiver, one who is a manipulator, to one who wrestles with God. That's for some of us. That may be kind of a paradigm shift, and we may think, you know, what? I'm always pretty hippy skippy with my faith. I never have had a doubt in my life, and everything's pretty simple and easy for me. Maybe it's because you've never embraced God in His fullness. Maybe you've never really thought and maybe really never studied on a little bit deeper level. Because there are going to be questions that come up that you're going to struggle with. There are going to be things that God asks of us and says that sometimes we're going to struggle with. And if you don't have any, I'd be happy to give you about ten verses that I look at and I go, Man, that's hard! I don't get that. That's just so difficult. And I think that's alright. I think that means you're being honest. And I think that's exactly where Jacob was. What about your name this morning? What does it represent? The name of God. There are several names that we see in the Hebrew, whether it be Yahweh, I Am. That's the name that God used to describe Himself in Exodus to Moses. Elohim, which is the primary name that's used by God, for God in early Genesis and throughout the Old Testament. Or El, which Elohim is the plural form of El. It means God. The all powerful and almighty one. Or we see El Shaddai, the all sufficient God. El, anytime we see that word in conjunction with another. El Elyon, Most High God. El Echad, the one God, which is used in the Shaman, Deuteronomy 6 4. Hear, oh, hear, Israel, there is but one God. El Echad, one God, the one and only God. Or Bethel, as we looked at before, where Jacob meets God, house of God. Or Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. Or Israel, one who contends or struggles or wrestles with God. Let's read this passage and see what we can learn from the life of Jacob. Beginning in chapter 32. Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. We see the angels of God there when he comes and when he leaves the blessing and leaves the promised land and when he returns. And this camp of God, so he named and which means two camps. And Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau into the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. You know, what's interesting is you see a different man after 20 years of refinement in God's refinement camp, so to speak. Because now, instead of trying to rush in and take the blessing, you see a spirit of humility being offered to Esau. He realizes that Though his sins may have been forgiven, the consequences may still very well be there. Verse 5: I have cattle, donkeys, sheep, goats, men servants, maid servants. I am sending this message to my Lord that I may feign favor in your eyes. What is he doing here? Well, first of all, he's letting Esau know: look, I'm not coming back to try to take away any of your inheritance, I've got plenty. As a matter of fact, I want to give to you, it was customary if you were going into another land or into another leader that you may pay tribute. So it may be what Jacob is doing here. He's paying tribute and respect and honor. He's also letting Jacob know that, look, I've got much. I'm not here to try to take from you or deceive you or manipulate your blessing from you as I've done in the past. And when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said... We went to your brother Esau. Now he is coming to meet you with 400 men. What do you think Jacob thought at this time? He's sending the, the, the cattle. He's sending uh, livestock with some of his servants, trying to soften his brother's heart, trying to call him a servant, trying to pay tribute. And he's had a word from God that this is where he's supposed to go. He's had the vision. And now what's occurring? Well, there are 400 men coming. What would you think? I think I'm scared. I remember he said he was going to kill me 20 years ago. I guess he's still planning on it. But yet he's wrestling with God gave me a vision. God told me to return to the land of promise. But yet here is Esau in front of me, and he's coming with 400 men. What do I do? Let's continue. And in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. And he thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. And we see right here, he's remembering the covenant. matter of fact, as, if you look at this prayer compared with the prayer in Genesis 28, you see a completely different type of prayer. In 28, we see Jacob trying to manipulate God and putting conditions on his prayer. Right now, he's just pouring his heart out. And he reminds God of the covenant. The covenant promise that was given to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac. Oh Lord, He said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. He's saying, God, You told me to go back to my country. Go back to my homeland. And You told me I would prosper there. I am unworthy. You see the humility. I am unworthy of all the kindness. That word hesed. uh, One of the great words used to describe God there. One enriching flavor in which God desires to bless and not just desires to bless, but does so in an action that causes transformation to occur for our good. And the faithfulness you have shown your servant I had only my staff. When I left here, all I had was my staff. I didn't have anything else. And he's not talking about like a staff of people. He's talking about a rod. That's all I had. I left all my possessions. My father was a wealthy man. My grandfather was wealthy. But I left all that in fear and ran to this land with nothing. And I crossed the Jordan. But now I've come back with two groups. I left with nothing. I've returned a man who is prosperous. A man who is wealthy. A man who has much because of God's favor and because of Your blessing. And he says in verse 11, Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. You know, I think it's great that he is very specific with his prayer right here. He's very he's saying, God, this is what I'm afraid of. Save me. You've made that covenant promise to my grandfather, to my father, and now to me. You have promised and you've asked me to return. And I'm asking you now to save me from my brother I'm afraid He will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. And He comes back. And what does He do? He quotes Scripture again. He quotes the promise of God, the words that He has received again, which is a great exercise for us, which is a great promise for us, a great exercise for us. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sands of the sea which cannot be Now, where is that from? It's from Genesis 16, uh, where the promise was given to Abraham, and Genesis 22. In Genesis 16 and 22, God makes that covenant promise to Abraham. And He tells him that uh, your descendants will be like the sands of the sea. And then He turns around and says it again in Genesis 22, and you will not be able to count all the descendants that will descend from you. So He comes back and He quotes that promise and He says... He spent the night there in verse 13, and from there he had with him selected a gift for his brother Esau. Two hundred female goats, twenty male goats, two hundred ewes, and twenty rams, thirty camels with their young, forty cows, ten bulls, twenty female donkeys, ten male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servant, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between your herds. Now he is now offering up a considerable portion of his wealth. And if... Uh, Esau receives this, and if he takes a th- he's put him in a position to where the this livestock the livestock that he's given can multiply, he can become much wealthier and so he is giving him all of this cattle, all of this livestock, and he's sending it ahead. and in verse 19 he also instructed the second and third and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and be sure to say, your servant Jacob, is coming behind. I'm coming. But I'm coming as a servant. I'm coming as one who is a giver and not a taker. And for he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts and I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent them all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and he wrestled with a man and wrestled with him until daybreak. So Jacob finds himself sending all of his loved ones and all of his possessions across the river, and then he's there alone. And scholars debate on what's going on here, but here's what I believe, and here's what I think to be true. This is a theophany or a Christophany. This is the manifestation of God in the flesh. That's what I believe is occurring here. And one of the reasons I believe that, because if you go back and look at Hosea chapter 12, you'll see that Hosea refers to him as the angel of God, as of God. And you see, if you go and read chapter 35, you'll see the same thing as he makes this reference back. And so, as he experiences this theophany, he begins to wrestle with him, the Bible tells us. In verse 25, when the man saw that he was not to, could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip became wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for his daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. We see him wrestling throughout the night. We don't know what time this started, but... At least in Jacob's mind, he's wrestling throughout the night with this man. And whether he realizes what's going on, we we don't know. Probably he doesn't have a full understanding. And then when he gets to the end of the day or the end of the night, he says, let me loose. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And this is after he's touched Jacob's hip. At this point, all he's doing is clinging on. Jacob is just clinging on. He's been wrestling, but now he's just clinging because in a sense, uh, God or this theophany has disabled Jacob to the point that all he can do is cling. He starts out wrestling, but now he's simply clinging after his hip has been touched or bruised or broken. Whatever occurs here, we know it's damaged in some manner. But Jacob says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And the man said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, God knows his name. This may just be a rhetorical question, but what is your name? I'm Jacob. I'm the heel grabber. I'm the trickster. I'm the deceiver. That's what my name represents and that's what I've lived And When people see me, that's what they think, particularly back home. That's what they know me as. And then the man said, You will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. We see this concept of dominion occurring here. We see it back in Genesis chapter one twenty-seven. and we see it in Genesis chapter 2 when God uh, created man and when God created uh, the day and the night, when we see God giving uh, Adam the dominion over the animals to name them, we see when that dominion mentality is taken that it shows ownership or rulership, and that's exactly what occurs here. As the Jews would have read that, they would have recognized that now Jacob is under the dominion and the ownership of God. Not that he wasn't before, but he fully recognizes it now. He says, your name is now one who struggles with God. Because you've been struggling with man. You've been manipulating man. You've been seeking to manipulate God. But now, you embrace and wrestle with me. You are one who wrestles with me. Hey, I don't know about you, but I'm comforted when I see that the father of the nation, we start with Abraham, we go to Isaac, we go to Jacob, in whom the name of that very nation, of God's people who are chosen by Him, it means one who wrestles with God. I don't know about you, but that's a comfort for me. When I struggle, when I have doubts, when life is hard, I resonate with a people and with a God who expects me to wrestle. See, the spiritual thing is not to just say, oh, nothing, I don't care. And just blow it off and act like you don't care and like you're ambivalent. That's not the spiritual thing to do. The spiritual thing is to say, God, I, I am struggling right now. I am dying right now. This is hard. I'm having a hard time believing, but I will trust You. As Job said, though yet You slay me, yet will I trust You. We see Jacob real with God. And then he says this, Jacob, please tell me your name. Excuse me, Jacob says, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? That's definitely a rhetorical question. Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Penel. means it is because I saw God's face and yet my life was spared. Because I saw God's face. Now, there were many who believed because it was nighttime, if he had seen his face in the daylight, then he would have died because it was God. But... If it's a theophany, I don't think that's an issue. If it's a Christophany, that's not an issue because we see that with Melchizedek. We see that happening a couple times through the Bible. I think it's because he does encounter God, because he does come face to face with God, that the blessing, the changing of His name, the changing of who He is occurs. In verse 31, The sun rose above Him, and he passed Pinnell, and he was limping because of his hip, because he was broken by God. He had been touched by God. He had been broken by God. In order for him to become the man that God desired for him to be, in order for change to really take place, we see that Jacob is broken. He's touched and he, is, he carries that with him for the rest of his life therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Now what can we learn from this story? What are some principles that we can glean? Here's Jacob over here with his past. His past was he manipulated his brother. He manipulated his father. He finds himself in a position where he has to escape where the blessing exists, where he was supposed to be. And he finds himself a little further down the road in his past at his, at his uncle's house, Laban. And though he's been a deceiver, now Laban has his master's degree in deception. And he schools Jacob. And many times I think Jacob can't help but think, maybe I'm getting what I deserve. If this is the way that I live my life, this is what I can expect in return. But during that time, he grows in his faith somewhat. And he matures. And There comes that time when the vision is given. It's time to go. It's time to leave here. And he finds himself in the present, leaving his past, leaving his uncle's land, and headed toward the future of the promise which God has given him. But I wonder if sometimes he thought, I just want to stop right here and quit. I just want to camp out here in the present situation because I don't know what's ahead of me. I know God has made a promise, but there's also Esau there. There's also a barrier. There's a wall there that I don't want to try to climb because I don't know what the results of that wall might be. I don't know what Esau might do. So I wonder if he was just tempted in that 500-mile journey, being a wealthy man to just stop and just camp out in no man's land where nothing great nor nothing bad would probably ever happen. He would just fall into a life of existence. But He chooses to continue. But as He's headed toward the future, as He's headed toward the promise of the blessing, the land where He is to live, the land where His descendants are to thrive, He worries. He's afraid. And you and I can certainly relate to that. We think the present may be difficult, but some of us worry really about the future. What will happen with the economy? What will happen with our children? What will happen with our health? It's something sometimes we give, if we stop and wait long enough and think about it long enough and let the doubts of the world crowd in. It's certainly something we can become afraid of and we see that constantly happening in Jacob's life. On one hand, he's a man of faith. I'm headed toward the promise. On the other hand, he's dealing with fear. He's wrestling with a promise. But here's reality in front of me. I'm sure you can identify that. Those are reasons he he certainly wrestled with God. And we see ways that he wrestled. We see in prayer he wrestled with God. As he calls out the promise, as he calls out what he's feeling, to God Almighty. We see in His plans. We see in his fears the ways that he wrestles with God. And then we see the results of Jacob's wrestling with God. We see him becoming a man of realness, of authenticity. We see depth in his faith. We see humility. Look at these prayers in Genesis chapter 28. Turn back with me to Genesis 28, verse 20. And then let's compare this prayer to the prayer that he prays 20 years later. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on the journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God and the stone that I have set up as a filler will be God's house and all, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Jacob bargains with God, seeks to manipulate God. But then we turn over and we come 20 years later in chapter 32. And if you turn with me to verse 9, and here's what occurs. O God, my Father, God of Father Isaac, O Lord, said to me, go back to your country, your relatives, and I will make you prosper. Listen at his heart. I am unworthy of your kindness and your faithfulness that you have shown your servant. When I left here, I only had a staff, and I crossed the Jordan, but now I've become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, Lord, your word, your vision, you have said to me, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sands of the sea, which cannot be counted. Notice the difference. A man of humility, a man of faith, a man who's afraid, much like you, much like me. What are the changes that occur with us when we decide to wrestle with God, when we decide to embrace God? You've heard the quote, everyone enjoys a victory, but few are willing to work hard enough, endure the pain and the discipline and the struggle that is required. You see, in order for us to really know God, to grow in God, to be impacted by God, it means wrestling. It means struggle. And when we struggle and we wrestle with God, we find out who we really are. We find out what we're made of. We find out the depth of our faith. We find out what our testimony is really made of. We are conformed into the image. God wants to change your name today. You may say, what does that mean? Well, maybe you're here today and your name is manipulation. Maybe your name is hypocrisy. When people say your name and they think of your faith, this is what they think of. Maybe when they hear your name or when you think of your name, maybe your name represents greed, self-centeredness. Maybe it represents fear. Maybe it represents shallowness. Maybe it represents an embarrassment to the faith. Maybe it represents tradition. Just something that I do but don't really live. But when you embrace God, when you begin to wrestle with God, He begins to change you. And sometimes He changes our name faithful, one who is honest, one who is real, one who is passionate, one who is humble, one who slips but always gets back up. Maybe your name is and Lee Clark. When I hear that name, Kyle has been through three brain cancers, who's going through chemo right now, three small children, yet chooses to walk in faith. You know what I think of? I think of somebody's name who's been changed because when I hear those names now, I think of one who walks in faith regardless. One who wrestles with God and struggles with God, but one who says, I choose to embrace. I think of my friend Floyd Keener who will be here in the next service. Floyd who was in federal prison for attempted murder. And who God came into his life and humbled and broke him. And now... If you see him, he's like a dead big teddy bear handing out bulletins, helping people, serving. One who serves. One who seeks to help. Who seeks to give. Who seeks to love. I don't know what your name is this morning, but I know this. God wants to change the character of your name. The question is, will you begin that process? Will you embrace Him? Some people do change. It's those... Choose to let God take them to the mat. What about you this morning?